you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at laist.com sweeps. LAist Studios. A quick warning. Some of the series includes descriptions of graphic violence. What's your full name? George Smith. Wayne Smith. On the side of a mountain in Southern California, a bleeding man crawls from the scraggly brush. A helicopter hovers above. We're on tape recording the conversation, right? Okay, he nodded his head. You have a bullet in your back. You realize that, correct? There's a possibility that you may die. You realize that? Yeah. With that in mind, do you want to tell me anything about what happened? An officer cuffs the man, and a detective immediately flips on a tape recorder. Did you get in a shootout with the cops in a bank in Norco? The Security Pacific Bank? How many of you were there? Five. What were their names? Chris, Bill, Manny, George, and Russ. George Smith is the first suspect from the bank robbery that the police have been able to capture and question. He's been shot multiple times. I got three in my leg. You got three rounds in your leg? Yeah. Where did you get the three rounds in your leg? At the back. The detective is walking George down the hill to a helicopter. We're going to do what we can, George, but the helicopter can't land here, and we've got quite a ways to walk before we can get you to where you're going to be picked up. Oh, goodness. There's a danger George could pass out before he gives a full confession. George, what's your full name? Uh, uh, what's your full name? George Wayne Smith. George Wayne Smith. How old are you, George? I'm 27 years old. Tell where you're from, you George. Castle, Wyoming. Uh, no more questions. It's May 10th, 1980, the day after one of the most intense standoffs that Southern California law enforcement has ever seen. And it all began with George Smith and four other men who tried to pull off a bank robbery in Norco, California. But things would quickly go sideways. Do you know that an officer has been killed? I'm telling you now, an officer has been killed and you'll be taken into custody in San Bernardino County for the murder of one officer. Did you see them kill the officer? Did you fire at any officers in this canyon area? Testing one, two, three, four. Testing one, two, three, four. The same day, police would question a second suspect, a man in a blue hoodie and black field boots named Chris Harvin. Do you feel like there was a whole lot? Do you mean how the whole thing got started? Yeah. Well, no place like the beginning, man. Without even asking for a lawyer, they get straight into the details. The getaway car they used, the weapons they bought, the bombs they made, even the drugs they consumed before the robbery. Well, we smoked a lot of pot and drank a lot of booze because that's about the only way I can handle it. And then how much uh, marijuana did you smoke? How much did we take? Stupid. And I can't deny anything about it. You know, the whole thing is stupid. That's what I'm doing right now. 
In these tapes, you can hear that the robbers are still processing what they just did. Like when a detective asked Chris Harvin if they had practiced the robbery ahead of time. Had you guys rehearsed the operation? No rehearsal. No rehearsal. Well, it went pretty smoothly for no rehearsals. I mean, you guys went smoothly? Like a bunch of professionals, uh, from what I understand. I thought it was a botched job from the word go. Is there? He tells the homicide detective, smoothly, it was a botched job from the word go. Everything that, you know, we would have expected to go wrong went wrong, you know. Everything that I said would go wrong went wrong. I'm Antonia Cerejido, and from Elias Studios and Futuro Studios, this is Norco 80, a series about one of the most violent bank robberies in U.S. history. In this series, we look at what happened that day, in May of 1980 and what would happen after all the gun smoke cleared away. It's a story that brings up a lot of questions. Questions that still feel present today around access to guns, the purpose of law enforcement, and the seductiveness of survivalism. And we're gonna look at how the shock of the Norco bank robbery spread from a sheriff's department in Southern California to police all across the country and pushed police to demand bigger, more powerful weapons and how that contributed to the kind of policing we're still grappling with today. But above all, we're going to tell the story of how five disaffected young men made a plan that went spectacularly wrong. The officer wasn't supposed to happen. Billy wasn't supposed to happen. No, it happened. My five fucked up. The year of the bank robbery, 1980, was an anxious time. There was a lot going on. Violent crime was on the rise. And like today, the economy was taking a nosedive. An unpopular president was finishing out his first and last term. In 1976, candidate Carter promised to lead America to great new heights. In three and a half years, millions of American workers find themselves out of work. And confidence in presidential leadership has fallen to the lowest levels in our nation's history. Today, climate change and a global pandemic are the existential crises we live with. But back then, it was the Cold War. Nuclear weapons were a potential world-ending threat. And in a nation primed for an apocalypse, religious groups preaching the end times were attracting followers. The Bible says in the twinkling of an eye, millions of people will suddenly disappear because the rapture will come and Christ will return. As we close out on 2020, a trying year to say the very least, it's interesting to look back at another time when people felt like the world was ending. When, like today, there was so much uncertainty in the air. And all of these things, all of this tension, would come to a head during the Norco bank robbery of May 9th, 1980. We'll be right back. Imagine if you could charge your electric vehicle at the places you already love to eat, shop, and play. Whether you're at the movies, on your weekly grocery trip, or running errands at your local mall, Volta EV charging stations are built around your day-to-day and located in your community and nationwide. All you have to do is check in, plug in, and go about your day. It's EV charging made convenient. Download the Volta app to find your new favorite place to charge. 
Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. <laughs> yeah, I think they're so smart. Just, what the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. Chapter One, The Robbery. You remember me? Okay. I'm going to tape record our conversation again, okay? Once the helicopter arrived at the hospital, George Smith was hooked up to an IV and a detective continued to question him. How did you get the van? Uh, I didn't get it. I had uh, Manny, Billy, and Russ got it. He walked the detective through the day of the robbery. Before the men would even get to the bank, they needed to hijack a car. The detective asked them how they would do that. How did they do that? I kidnapped. Who did they kidnap, you know? Owner of the van. George says they had to kidnap a man. It was 1980, but Gary Hakala's van was holding on to the kitschy style of the 1970s. It was just your typical 70s Dodge van with a shag carpet on the floor, a bench seat all the way around with a, with a closet on the uh, driver's side. The storage closet was especially helpful. Gary used the van for his canning business. I was canning dehydrated food. I had a, a greenhouse with a thousand tomato plants going. At the time, business was booming. Some weeks, it brought in as much as a million dollars. So Gary was feeling optimistic on a bright sunny day in May as he drove across the Inland Empire to pick up some supplies. You know, that day had more things happen that, you know, where all the stars lined up for my benefit and all the stars lined up to work against me. The Inland Empire is a sprawling region the size of West Virginia stretching all the way from the border of Los Angeles to as far as Arizona. Up until the 1950s, it was known mainly for its orange and lemon trees. Among California crops, citrus occupies one of the king spots. But in the 1980s, it became a destination suburb for families and small businesses like Gary's. More space at an affordable price. Around 11.30 that day, Gary made what he thought would be a quick stop at a shopping mall in Brea, California. And I really got to go to the restroom. And as they pull into the parking lot, there's a low rider and there are three guys in there and they're glaring at me. I was 35 years old and I thought I was quite a little rooster at the time. You know, I'd coached wrestling and wrestled a little in college. And I, you know, I probably had a little inflated opinion of how bad I was, but you know, I'm glaring back at him. I pull around to park. And as I went to the back of the trailer, I was going to, I had a huge uh, master padlock. Gary decides to lock up the van, just in case. Well, as I went to the back of the van, there's no windows in the back. The slow rider pulls up to the side of the van. I didn't hear him. And I turn around and boom, three doors are open. Three men in military fatigues jump out. And then I thought, well, the parking lot's full of people. I thought, well, I'm going to be okay if I'm calm and uh, I don't agitate these people. I'll be okay. That was wrong. Next thing Gary knows, one of the men is on top of him. He's cracking my head with the gun and he has reinforced nylon tape 
almost impossible to break this stuff. And he tapes me from the wrists up to my elbows and my ankles to my knees. He puts a sack over my head. A second man jumps into Gary's van. I don't know why I said this, but I said, take my glasses and and put them in the glove compartment. And then a third man starts to hack at the shelves inside the van closet with a knife. There are nails sticking out and and splinters of wood. And he says, uh, get in the closet. It's a foot wide. And I said, well, I can't fit in there. Puts the gun practically in my mouth. And it's surprising how small an area you can fit in when you have no options. The van takes off with Gary crammed into the back closet. As I'm in there, my shoulder's under pressure. My testicles are getting smashed. Remember, I stopped by to pee and, you know, I've got to go to the bathroom. I'm getting cut up in there from the nails and and broken stuff. I work the sack off my head in there. I can see out the back window. I can smell the dairy farms. I'm trying to keep track of the turns so I can figure out where we're going. Pretty soon I'm, I give up. I'm, I'm, I'm lost where we are. The van pulls into what Gary thinks is a construction site where he sees two or three more people in the same military fatigues as his kidnappers. I'm very, I guess in some ways, innocent person, but it was the first time I'd really smelled marijuana. One of them was, was uh, on that. I remember the smell. And they started throwing things into the van. I could hear like nylon bags and so on. And I could feel the weight of the van go down under the weight. Then I hear the racking of rifle actions. From my ear, it was semi-automatic rifle actions. As they're loading it up, my shoulder is under such immense pain. You know, I think it's out of the socket. My arms and legs have gone numb from the tape. You know, I've got a piece so bad. Uh, I'm afraid if I wet my pants, that's all it'll take to have them go off on me. All of a sudden, we bounced off a curb and went across the street. And, uh, you know, it's a go, go, go. And I can hear a kid scream as the door opens. I didn't know at that point it was, it was the bank. We'll be right back. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. We're back. In the 1980s, the greater Los Angeles area was known as the bank robbery capital of the world. Across the country, bank robberies had gone up more than 50% from 1975 to 1980. And according to an FBI investigator, up to a third of bank robberies happened in Los Angeles. And there was an easy explanation for this. More and more and more cars. The California freeway system. It was ubiquitous. 
California's population had boomed with the advent of car culture. And while freeways made for a much speedier commute, they also allowed for a much quicker getaway if you were a robber. And some of these bank robbers were so prolific, they even got their own nicknames, like the Yankee Bandit, who was known for wearing a Yankee cap during his heists. One time, he robbed six banks in just four hours. And yet, while bank robberies were commonplace, most of them were kind of uneventful. A man dressed in a suit or an unassuming outfit would politely tell a bank teller that he had a gun in his pocket, and the teller would hand over a few thousand dollars. But the bank robbery that George Smith would carry out was different. It didn't happen in LA. It happened in Norco, a small town in the Inland Empire about an hour east of Los Angeles. And in 1980, the town didn't even have a freeway running through it. In fact, local residents had their own unique way of getting around. Norco was a, a horse community. People came together and, you know, rode their horses. Sharon Dickens worked at the local security Pacific Bank, located on the main drag of Norco, a place with more horse trails than sidewalks. I don't remember there being crime in, during that time. Everybody knew everybody. and Sharon actually knew George Smith. George Smith was one of our clients, one of our customers. I knew him from the bank. He had real thick, curly hair and he wore glasses. If I had seen him walk through the door at the bank in his street clothes by himself, I probably would have said, hi, George. Back in the hospital, the day after the bank robbery, George would take the detective through what happened at the bank. And just summarize how you guys planned it. We planned I hit it on a Friday. George had purposely picked to hit the bank on a Friday. Payday. Sharon Dickens was working that day at the bank. This Friday was not a typical Friday. In fact, we all talked about how, how strange it was. It was 3.30 in the afternoon. Normally, the branch on a Friday would be jam-packed, and it was not. Sharon remembers it was casual Friday at the Security Pacific Bank. The tellers wore Levi's and T-shirts. We were all on the teller line as we were expecting the crowd to come on Friday, and we heard this tremendous noise. What it was was the four of them hitting both of those double doors at one time. George was the timekeeper. He had a timer in his hand set to two minutes. 120 seconds. That's how long he figured they had to get in, get the money, and get out before the cops would arrive. And it was like time stood still for a minute. Nobody, nobody moved, nobody said anything until the command was given to hit the floor. Sharon dropped to the ground but could still see the robbers. That's when the suspects took their positions. One jumped up on the counter right in front of me. One stayed by the door. Who stood at the door and called off the time you had? I did. Sharon didn't recognize George. They had army or military fatigues on. They had ponchos, ski masks, camouflage pants, boots, and big guns. Did you guys have any machine guns? All ARs. AR-15s? Yeah. I did attempt to push my silent alarm, but 
the suspect who was on the counter in front of me said, if any, if any effing alarms go off, the effing bullets are going to fly. So I'm like, uh-uh, I ain't going to be no hero. Then he yelled to get up. And that's when he threw the bag down in front of me and gave the command to everybody to empty their money into the bag. 30 seconds left. At one minute and 30 seconds, I said, time, 30 seconds. They needed to be out in half a minute. One of the robbers dragged the branch manager to the back bolt. At that time, I heard one of the suspects yelling, time, time. What did you say? Time, time. And we're taking too much time. So then I said to the suspect on the counter, do you want this? He said, yes, I want it. So he took the bag from me. And then he looked at me and he goes, I want you, I want you on the floor. So I sat down and he said, no, I want you face down. And that is the only time that I thought this, this man's going to kill me because he said it a couple of times. I want you face down on the floor. And the only thing I could think of at that time was my three girls being without a mother. At, uh, at two minutes, I said time again, and now. Okay, then you guys all left the bank, is that correct? Yes, we did. And then they exited. George and the others had made it out, money in hand. In two minutes, just like George had planned. No one was hurt. No one had died. This could have been like so many of the other bank robberies at the time. Yeah, I should have made it a minute and 30 seconds instead of two minutes. Five fucked up. George tells the detective, I should have made it a minute and 30 seconds instead of two minutes. I fucked up. The cops had already arrived. That's fourth and Hamner. They are shooting. Next time on Norco 80... The cop would pull into the parking lot at the exact second that they come out, and that's when the gunfire erupted. Officer hit. Clear the air. 11.99. Norco 80 is written and produced by me. Antonia Cerejido, and by Sofia Paliza Carr. The show is a production of LAist Studios in collaboration with Futuro Studios. Leo G is the executive producer for LAist Studios. Marlon Bishop is the executive producer for Futuro Studios. Joaquin Kotler is our associate producer. Juan Diego Ramirez is our production assistant. Maria Alexa Cavanaugh is our intern. Editing by Audrey Quinn. Fact-checking by Amy Tardif. Engineering by Stephanie LeBeau and original music by Zach Robinson. Special thanks to James Kirkland, Teresa DeRuder-Wages, and Kurt Rothschiller. Our website is designed by Andy Cheatwood and the digital and marketing teams at Elias Studios. The marketing team of Elias Studios created our branding. Thanks to the team at Elias Studios, including Kristen Hayford, Taylor Kaufman, Kristen Muller, and Leo G. If you want to hear more about Norco 80, please follow or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, NPR One, the iHeart app, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please don't forget to rate and review the show.
This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people. The Colorado River is running dry. Water may not reach millions of people. So if there's no water, there's no water for everybody. It's up to California's lead negotiator, a 28-year-old. This is a historic thing coming. And six other negotiators to find a solution. I want an agreement that lessens the pain for all of us, not just some of us. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts.